Good morning again. Please have that uh, passage open in front of you. Um, We're going to look at it together. Uh, Let us pray. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity we have to read your word, to encourage each other. And Father, we pray that you would be glorified in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Uh, last week was a wonderful Sunday. Uh, if you can remember that far back, the, the Sharps were baptised. Uh, I myself was baptised uh, in my mid-teens a few years ago. Uh, and by the time I was 21, about then, I decided I didn't, I didn't really want to call myself a Christian anymore. And it wasn't that I'd kind of given up my faith at all. I'd, I'd, if anything, become more and more passionate about Jesus. It was this that I'd lost faith in people knowing what a Christian really was. I'd met so many people at university who called themselves a Christian, but I thought, they don't, they don't look like a Christian. I don't think they're a Christian. Now, you might think, oh, Mike, only God knows the heart. Uh, but the Bible tells us that out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the people that I was talking to, that, that called themselves a Christian, they were trying to describe what it meant to them. It was almost like they were trying to describe what primary school they went to. They'd describe how their parents were Christian or they'd been baptised as, as an infant or they'd been to church at Easter or Christmas once in the last 10 years. And back then it really raised a question for me. How do you recognise a true Christian? How do you recognise a true Christian? But not only that for us, how, how should we live as true Christians in this day and age? Like it feels like of any time in the last few years, now is the time where people can be justifiably more selfish They feel like their life and death is at stake. How do we live as true Christians? And I think uh, this is what Jesus is addressing. We're actually going to be looking at both of the passages that were read today. Firstly, the parable of the talents and then uh, the prophecy uh, that Jesus makes after that. And I think they both give a certain answer uh, to that question. How do we recognise and how do we live as true Christians? And we're just following along in our series in Matthew and and the context of these two uh, encounters is Jesus talking about his return. He's saying that he's going to come back and he he actually gives a series of four parables. We've looked at three already. The first one was where Jesus describes he's going to return like a thief in the night. I don't know why, but I always like that one. An unexpected return. The second one is that he's going to return like a master to his servants, that there is acceptable behaviour about for his servants. The third one was last week uh, with the parable of the virgins, that we need to keep watch and be prepared because it's going to be a long wait for his return. And today we come to the fourth parable, the parable of the talents, or as the NIV have updated it, the parable of the bags of gold. And we're going to start reading again from verse 13 because it carries on of chapter 25. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day 
or the hour. Verse 14, again, Jesus is making both the same point, but he's also expanding it. He says, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. I just want you to notice three things just at the outset. Firstly, uh, the master uh, and Jesus' parable, everything, uh, lots of things is, are representative. So the master represents Jesus. He entrusts all of his wealth to his servants. And the servants are those who are following Jesus. That's the first thing, the master represents Jesus. The second one is his wealth was substantial. You might see down in the footnote uh, that the bag of gold is designated actually a talent, which is the Greek word, uh, which represents about 20 years' labour for a labourer, 20 years of wages, which in today's currency is about, ballpark, about a million dollars in today's currency. So the, the... the master has given one bloke five million dollars and said another person two million and the third one one million dollars. And thirdly, notice that each servant is entrusted with the master's possession according to his ability. The master kind of weighed up their skills and their abilities, their capability, and he gave them of his wealth accordingly. I used to think that this uh, parable was an illustration of, uh, about how God gave different people, different abilities. But we see that that's not the case. The bags of gold are given to people according to their ability. And so what do the bags of gold represent? Well, let's, let's keep reading and we'll see. Verse 16. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold. He gained two more, but the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Two go with the get-to-work strategy and one does the dig a hole in the ground, stuff it under the mattress strategy. Well, how does the master respond? He responds to the first two servants in the same way. After a long while, uh, verse 19, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with the five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. I'm going to pause there for a moment. Now, I think we see here the primary message of the parable. I think the primary message is while we wait for Jesus' return, improvement is expected. While we wait, improvement is expected. And I think this is driven home by what happens to the third servant, verse 24. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here it is, what belongs to you. The third servant actually makes some startling kind of revelations. He admits that the master is is strict, he's a hard man. And so if the servant lost his master's money, 
he would be in trouble. And so he's afraid, and so he acts very conservatively. So you might defend him at that point. Yet there's also an accusation that comes after that, that the master exploits people. He takes other people's crops, harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. And so it seems that the servant actually didn't want to serve his master. He didn't want to put the hard work in and for the profits to go to his master. And so he does something almost spiteful. Maybe two because he only got one bag of gold and not the five compared to the other. He goes and he buries it and returns it to him. Here it is, master, just as you gave it to me. I'm not working for you. In verse 26, his master replied. And it's interesting how the master replies and what it says about the servant. You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I've not sown and gather where I've not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. The master expects at least a little bit of improvement. I mean, particularly now, interest rates aren't very good. You'd only get a small amount of interest at the moment. But some improvement all the same. And for that servant, there was no improvement. He gave back what was given him, but there was no improvement. And so verse 28 So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have, will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside. He's worthless. He's not good for anything. Into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. While we wait for Jesus' return, improvement is expected, but improvement in what area? What do the bags of gold represent, the talents? Well, I think the world tells us, doesn't it, that the money we earn is ours, that the time we have is ours to spend on our good pleasure, that all our resources, they're, they're mine, they're mine, they're mine. Yet the Bible tells us that all we have is God's. When we repent of our sins and we turn and follow Jesus, we die to our sins and we die to our our selfishness. We die to ourselves and our wealth and our time and our resources are all in fact good gifts from God. Things that he's entrusted to us to use for, for his glory. Everything that we have is God's that is entrusted to us. Not just our wealth, not just our time or our resources, but also the people in our lives and the opportunities we have, our families and our friends, our relationships, our work colleagues, people in church and growth group, people that we can minister to, to say an uplifting and encouraging word to, those we serve alongside. They all, all these people present opportunities and they are, I think, bags of gold that God gives us, entrusts to us to use and serve him and point people to our Lord and Saviour. 
They're all bags of gold that God entrusts to you. Improvement is expected. And we have a choice, don't we? We have a choice each and every day, every moment. Am I going to serve my Lord and Saviour or am I going to serve me? Am I going to love like he loved me? Or will I be lazy and conservative and selfish and look after my, myself and, and be, be scared of failure and rejection? I think Jesus is saying we have a choice and what God has entrusted to you, we need to use for his glory and to seek improvement for, for him. I remember uh, at class in, in high school, one of my teachers was very gracious and she would often pause and kind of give us this look, almost give us a wink and she'd say, you know, that this something like this might be on the exam at the end of the year. And we would kind of snap out the highlighters, we'd bend the corner of our notebooks and pages and we would especially dialed in and taking note of what she said. Because what she said was going to be good for us, it was going to help us prepare well for that final exam. And I think Jesus, this is just before Jesus dies and goes to heaven, And he tells us these important things for our good so that we can be prepared, that we can persevere and that we can be a good and faithful servant that Jesus highlights here. And the stakes are high. I mean, we see in this parable those that are entrusted with much, much is expected. Uh, And the servant, he's actually, he's thrown out. He's cast away. He's actually no longer... By the end of the parable, he's no longer a servant of the master. So how do we recognise and how do we be true Christians? Well, I think uh, this is saying that that improvement is what God expects with the things that he entrusts to you. So that's the first part, the first part of our passage. Now let's turn to the second part, which is actually a prophecy uh, it doesn't. It's not really a, a parable. There's a small illustration about the sheep and the goats, but it's more prophecy. Let's look at verse 31 together. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Jesus is telling the future here about himself, the nature of his, of his return, that he himself is a king, he is the judge. Verse 32, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Just so you know, that's obviously the better side to sit on over here. Good job over there. The king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Now we see a few things here. We see here, first of all, that there's going to be a day of separation, the righteous from the unrighteous, those that receive eternal life, those that receive eternal punishment, and it's pretty clear cut. There's no sitting on the fence, there's no second chances, there's no purgatory here, no earning your way back up from one to the other. 
It's just like a shepherd dividing the sheep and the goats. And I wonder if uh, most of you would, uh, would be people that drive. I wonder if you can remember back to your driving test. When you jumped in the car, you had 30 minutes of driving around with someone sitting there next to you with a piece of paper, ticking things, crossing things off, taking note of what you did, giving instructions. Turn left here, turn right there. And at the end, you get a result. If you haven't flunked it halfway through and the, the, the tester tells you to stop and you failed. But at the end, the, the tester will say whether you, you can now drive or whether you can't. It's a clear test on that day. And these two passages are, are pointing that to that day when Jesus sits on his throne and declares the results. He looks at people at their lives. He looks at my life and says, am I a true Christian? And there are three things that I've noticed from this passage that Jesus reveals about who are the true Christians. The first one is the righteous love Jesus. So verse 35, this is Jesus talking, talking to the righteous. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was ill and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. So the righteous are so because they fed and they watered, they clothed and visited Jesus the King himself. They loved him. And we see in verse 42 the reverse for the unrighteous. They're the people who don't feed Jesus, who didn't water him, didn't care for him or visit Jesus the King. So that's that's the clear message of what Jesus is saying. That's not really a surprise. I don't think either either group were surprised that one was righteous and one was unrighteous. But what, what is fascinating in this prophecy is the emphasis that Jesus places on how. Because the righteous love Jesus very practically. Jesus doesn't list their theology or their credentials at this point, doesn't list the, the number of converts or the sermons. He says, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. And we can all do that. We can all feed someone and give someone a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I mean, we might ask if they've travelled overseas recently and get them to use hand sanitizer if it's a stranger. But we can, we can invite strangers in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was ill and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. None of these things are very difficult. They don't cost lots of money. But they're all just basic expressions and practical expressions of love. Seeing the person as a whole human being. Jesus highlights that the righteous are those who love Jesus practically. But how how do people actually do that? We can't go and visit Jesus in his house in heaven and offer him a drink. And both the righteous and unrighteous are surprised about the evidence that Jesus gives. And they say, when did we do this? Verse 37, the righteous ask, when did we, when did we care for you? And verse 44, the unrighteous say, when didn't we care for you? 
When did we not have that opportunity? And here in verse 40 is that that vital word for us to notice. The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. See how we treat a follower of Jesus, Jesus' own brother or sister, is how we treat Jesus himself. And so the third point is that the righteous love Jesus' family practically. I don't know if you've uh, run into some people that say they love Jesus, but they just, they just can't handle Christians or people at the church. or They love Jesus, they love all that he's about. They say they follow him, but they just can't, can't stand Christians. Yet what Jesus is saying is the way you treat Christians is ultimately how you treat Jesus himself. John puts it in a different way in his first, first letter. 1 John 4.20 says, Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. And so John, he, he calls them out. He says they're actually lying. If you, They don't actually love Jesus. They say they do, but they don't because they don't love Jesus' family. And this is very significant, how Jesus identifies those who loves him. Because a Christian, a Christian isn't kind of Jesus' messenger. A Christian isn't someone who Jesus uses to wash the dishes and, and kind of do his laundry and that kind of thing. A Christian is not the employee of God or Jesus. Jesus speaks profound truth when he identifies Christians as brothers and sisters, as part of his family. Men, we become his brother. Women, you become his sister. We are part of the family And we're a family together and how we treat one another matters deeply. And almost to drive it home, Jesus repeats that practical list four four times in his prophecy. He's almost kind of reminding people, I know you might think, you know, you just need to be thinking eternal thoughts all the time, but you need to get practical and love people, feed them, give them a drink, Invite the strangers in. And it's particularly relevant because of the context of what Jesus has just spoken about in the previous chapter. In the previous chapter, Jesus was talking about how the future of followers of him are going to be treated. They're going to be persecuted. They're going to be imprisoned. They're going to be hated by the world. Some are going to die for their faith. And so it's an especially important role for Christians and followers of Jesus to look after fellow Christians who are in prison, who are without food, without income, who have no home to go to maybe. And as followers of Jesus are united in Jesus, we are especially called to care for one another and love one another. How we treat 
our brothers and sisters in Christ, is actually how we treat, reveals how we treat God. And so how do we recognise and be a true Christian? Well, our actual actions display our identity and our actions reveal what our destiny will be. I'm just going to close with um, <clears throat> one of my uh, favourite youth group games is called Diamond Smugglers. Has anyone heard of Diamond Smugglers? A couple, yes, the youth group kids at the back, good job. Uh, each person at the start of the game receives a secret identity and they have to keep it secret and hidden. They can't tell people who they are. They're either a, a, diamond, a smuggler who goes and collects a diamond from a secret cache. There's a a courier who receives the diamonds off the smugglers and takes it to a safe house. And the third identity is the police person whose job is to try and intercept the diamonds or arrest the smugglers and the couriers and try and stem this illegal flow of diamonds. The idea is people, you don't know who anyone is, their identity is a secret, and there's much joy at the end when you discover who people are. Ah, oh, you were a policeman all along. But it's interesting. At the end of the game, uh, the kind of the reveal is, is a little bit anticlimactic because by the end of the game, you pretty much know who people are. You know who the smugglers are because they're going into their secret room. You know who the couriers are because they're always receiving diamonds and heading off in a different direction. And the policemen are always arresting people and taking them off to jail, sometimes successfully, sometimes without success. And so you see, the actions of people actually display who their identity is. People are trying to get busier doing their job and getting better at it. But their actions display their identity. And it's the same for, for Christians. And Jesus is highlighting that for us today in our passages. The people that follow him are seeking improvement about the things that God entrusts to him. And also for those that are righteous, they are seeking to love God's family practically. I pray that we would be a people who, who do that and are, are those are filling, fulfilling those things and using the things that God has entrusted to us, the people that we're surrounded with, that we can connect with, the opportunities we have, the resources God has given us, time, wealth, all so that, that God himself would be glorified that we would build one another up, care for each other, and all the while, while we wait for Jesus to return on his glorious throne. Let us pray. Dear Father, we, we thank you that you don't leave us with anything to do, but you call us to, to follow you and glorify you in our lives and to work for you. And Father, we pray that, that we would all be people who, who hear that, that wonderful 
news at the end of our lives that we are good and faithful servants who serve you. And Father, we pray that we too would love one another practically, sacrificially, as an expression of your great love for us and our love for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.